You're listening to That'll Preach, and uh, we have an interview today. We haven't done one of these in a little bit, so we're glad to get these interviews uh, going again. But to our guest today is Dr. Greg Allison. He's a professor of Christian theology at Southern Seminary, and he's written extensively on the topic of ecclesiology, specifically with Roman Catholicism. Uh, he wrote a book called 40 Questions About Roman Catholicism, which is really a guide for lay people to understand the Catholic tradition and understand it from an evangelical perspective. And so, uh, Greg, we're, we're happy to have you on. Thanks for making the time. Thanks, Brian. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Well, you know, one of the things that I've really appreciated just hearing about your work with Roman Catholicism is uh, it seems like you really try to understand Catholics on their own terms. And uh, one of the things I remember, and, and this is on a personal note, what got me interested on what we want to talk about today, about sort of the, the contrasting the Catholic approach to scripture and tradition versus the Protestant, um, is when I first became a Christian, it was like, you know, I was in college, and it's kind of like you're, you're reading apologetics about Christianity, and you're learning about the resurrection, and then it's kind of like you, you sort of take the leap of faith. You know, you don't have all the answers, you take a leap. And I felt like I took a leap. And I look down beneath my feet, and it's not like one thing of land. It's actually three fractured pieces of land, <laughs> one saying Roman Catholicism, one saying Eastern Orthodoxy, one saying Protestantism. And they all are saying that the other piece of land is quicksand. And so I'm like, wow, this is a little more complicated. And that's what kind of launched me into trying to understand the differences between these traditions. And uh, that that was got me reading a lot about Catholicism and thinking about it. And uh, it's 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 quite a, a a deep well to dive into understanding the differences, and I'm just curious how you got interested in learning about, and 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 focusing a lot of your research on Roman Catholicism. So it goes all the way back to when I was five years old, and my next door neighbor Mary Ann Barter told me that I was going to hell because I was a Protestant. And she was obviously Roman Catholic. Yeah. Uh, this is before Vatican Council II. So she was an old conservative five-year-old <laughs> uh, Roman Catholic apologist and staunch critic of Protestantism. And that frightened, uh, frightened me deeply that uh, I was going to go to hell because I was a Protestant. So I didn't know what that meant. So Anyway, my parents started bringing us to church because I was interested in finding out. But but that kind of started it. And then my wife and I uh, graduated from the university and joined the staff of Campus Crusade for Christ, now called Crew. And our first assignment was uh, to launch the ministry at the University of Notre Dame in South wow. Bend, Indiana, which is 80% Roman Catholic. So just yeah. about every student that we talked to was Roman Catholic. And so that propelled me into studies about Roman Catholic theology and practice. And then eventually we ended up three years living in Rome. <laughs> and uh, and so just everybody there is Roman Catholic, even though quite secularized. And then I took a class on the documents of Vatican II, which is the latest ecumenical con council of the Catholic Church. So I studied uh, what the Catholic Church believed with other Roman Catholic seminarians, and I've been teaching and writing on this topic for uh, almost three decades. So you went right to the heart of the beast. I mean, you went right into Rome. You went right into Notre Dame. Right into I mean. Rome, exactly. And I go back there every summer. Uh, there's a group of us who teach uh, what's called the Rome Scholars and Leaders Network. Uh, we are evangelicals who are concerned that there are lots of evangelicals in the world today who are attracted to Roman Catholicism for various reasons, but they don't understand the Roman Catholic theological system. They, 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 they're attracted to things like the mass and the mystery and history and things like that, but without a firm understanding of what it what Roman Catholic system is, uh, we feel like they're naive, naive, and so we want to help evangelicals better understand what is Roman Catholicism, what is its theology and practice, and help them assess it from an evangelical and biblical point of view. That's so helpful. I mean, I think in our current culture, it, it seems like because there's such sort of a militant kind of progressive force, it's made interesting allies out of Catholics and Protestants. Uh, 
to the point where some of the differences are are relativized. You know, I feel like it's kind of like the, you know, the enemy and my enemy is my friend. I, I don't know if we want to say that Catholics and Protestants are necessarily enemies, but I mean, there are significant differences, but because of a cultural moment, and, and I, I can feel the appeal. I mean, you have a strong authoritative structure ruling very clearly on social issues. And, you know, it, it kind of has this uh, very traditional aesthetic. And I think people are, and we talked about this before we started the podcast, a lot of people, even like young guys are like really attracted to Catholicism as a way of life, as kind of preserving an order that is disintegrating before our eyes in our culture. It, 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 there's almost a romanticism about it that's, that's baked into it. I like your term romanticism. I think that's a really a good descriptor of what this what's what we see going on. So so going back to your your uh first point here, there is a co-belligerence on the part of Eastern Orthodox, uh Roman Catholics and Protestants. We're focusing on the last two. So Francis Schaefer Schaefer back in the 70s talk about a co-belligerence between peoples of all different persuasions, religions, philosophies, and all like that, to favor what John Paul II would eventually call a culture of life over against a culture of death. And so we joined arms very willingly um, and, and compassionately to battle against abortion and euthanasia and all like that. And, and as we work through those social issues, uh, we also began to see that there's a lot of even theological areas, doctrinal areas that overlap. And 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 a lot of people today, uh, particularly young people, are attracted to the authority of the Roman Catholic Church. Like you said, the ethical philosophy, moral philosophy is very, very strong. The aesthetic aspect is a is a key part of this. Uh, and then a connection with 2000 years of history uh, and uh, that really tries to preserve unity. But there's a romanticism, to use your word, a kind of naivete, an attraction to certain aspects without understanding the whole big picture of it. Well, one of the things that I noticed was a really big sort of chasm is the Catholic and Protestant differences with regard to approaching Scripture. And um, I, how would you explain to just your average layperson, if you were talking uh, about scripture how how these two traditions view it and use it what would you what would how would you explain the the difference between those two how would you contrast those approaches to scripture just to the average ordinary christian let's think of a three-legged stool um this is the roman catholic structure of authority uh one of those legs is scripture the written word of god a second leg is tradition. We'll talk about that. And the third leg is the magisterium, the Pope in his teaching office. And you have to have all three of these legs for the stool to function. You can't have two or one out, one out of three or two out of three for the Roman Catholic system to exist. So Roman Catholicism is grounded on these three legs. Let's focus on uh, scripture. Scripture, according to Roman Catholicism, is God's written revelation. Old Testament and New Testament. So there's a great overlap between Roman Catholics and Protestants on that front. Now, there is a difference. A Roman Catholic Old Testament, the canon or list of the official books belonging in the Old Testament, is longer than it is in our Protestant version. Roman Catholics have what they call the apocryphal writings, like Judith and Tobit and First and Second Maccabees and things like that. And there's some addition, additional aspects to Esther and Daniel in the Roman Catholic Old Testament. So we disagree on what constitutes divine written revelation. Those are though there's quite a bit of overlap. Um, according to Roman Catholics, there's also tradition, which is another kind of a second aspect of this mainstream of divine revelation, such that God reveals himself in his way to us, not only through scripture, his written word, but also through tradition, which began as Jesus's oral communication to his disciples that they did not write down, but they orally communicated to their successors, the bishops of the Catholic Church. This oral communication that continues to be passed down and fostered, protected, and occasionally proclaimed 
by the magisterium, the teaching office of the church, the pope in conjunction with the bishops. And this is uh, a, a second aspect of the one stream of divine revelation. Protestants do not have that kind of tradition. Let's call it capital T tradition. In fact, one of the major conflicts during the time of the Reformation was the Protestant uh, motto, the formal principle, sola scriptura, only scripture. Scripture alone is divine revelation and therefore the ultimate authority to know God in his ways. Roman Catholicism insisted no divine revelation, uh, God's revelatory activity is consists of these two aspects of one stream, scripture and tradition. Let's throw in that third leg, then the magisterium, the pope and the bishops in their teaching function, they have the prerogative and the authority to say what books belong in the Bible, what uh, communicate, what, what traditional elements should be proclaimed as official doctrine in the Catholic Church, and the magisterium is the official interpreter of scripture and the official interpreter of tradition. So put all these together and you've got this construct, this three-legged stool, if you will, this, this uh, structure of authority and revelation in the Catholic Church. That's a great illustration because oftentimes you think of Catholicism as two legs. You don't think of the magisterium. I think that's actually the controversial part because I think a lot of times in polemics, it's like scripture alone, almost like, uh, you know, the uh, to the exclusion of any kind of drawing upon history. That's like the Protestant extreme. And then versus scripture and maybe holding tradition too high in esteem or something like that. But that third leg is actually probably really the dividing line. I mean, I, I'm, I'm thinking that's what divides them from the Eastern Orthodox. It's the magisterium and the papacy. That's really the leg that divides us the most, it seems like. So Eastern Orthodoxy does not recognize the primacy of the Roman Catholic Pope and then the magisterium. So that is a major dividing mm. point between Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox. And of course, we Protestants don't have anything like a magisterium. We don't have a pope uh, who is responsible for the authoritative selection and uh, interpretation of scripture. And of course, we don't have tradition. So that third leg is extremely important. You've got to look at all three to be able to understand the differences between Roman Catholicism and uh, Protestantism. And, and I like what you said about Protestantism. Sola Scriptura, scripture alone, does not mean that we don't have any kind of tradition, small t tradition that we just don't pay any attention to the writings of the early church uh, leaders, or we don't consider the creeds or our Protestant confessions. We don't throw those out. We consider them as very important guidelines. They're wisdom from the past that we neglect to our detriment, but they can never mount up to the authority of scripture because scripture alone is divine revelation, the way God addresses us uh, so that we might know him and know his ways. So if we put our Catholic hat on, you know, and, and you're in your conversations with Catholic theologians, what concerns do Catholics have about a Protestant approach to Scripture? When they look at us, so to speak, what are the things that they're like, that's messed up? This is why we have a magisterium. This is why we have a pope. This is why we have tradition as a second stream of revelation. Yeah, a, a major critique of Protestants by Roman Catholics is look at all the different denominations and look at all the different interpretations just of one passage of scripture. That's the Protestant interpretive chaos and the denominational divide, which they say is the result of not having the Pope and the magisterium to hold it all together. And certainly we bemoan the fact that we are split into thousands of denominations, and we have these very strong disagreements about the interpretation of scripture. The solution is not to go to Rome, because Roman Catholic uh, theology is as broad a spectrum as Protestant theology, right? So you've got arch-conservative Roman Catholic theology. You've got very progressive liberal Roman Catholic theology. There's great division within this one apparently monolithic organization, which is not really um, um, that monolithic. 
and there are many, many different interpretations of Scripture and tradition that go on within the Catholic Church as well. So we're all kind of beset by this problem. But I, I could see them saying, though, that even though there could be a diversity within Catholicism about particular views, they have the ability to set dogma for everybody. Uh, and so there's a there's a more top heavy kind of ability to control things, things like uh, homosexuality or uh, a, a male only priesthood. There seems to be, whereas for Protestants, you would just divide into denominations that, you know, could have different views on it. There seems to be more of a governor because of the of the papal structure. I on, like your on word. The, seems. There seems okay, to yeah, be. yeah. Okay. Let, let's go back a year ago. Okay. To my hometown, Chicago, Illinois, um, in a during a mass in a Roman Catholic church, um, two men in a homosexual relationship who have two children. These two men were invited to do a reflection following the homily by, by the priest, a reflection on how thankful they are to God that he has brought them together and that they have children that they can uh, benefit. Um, this was a violation of the um, protocol of how to carry out a mass. There is no allowance during a mass for lay people to do reflections. And you would think that the Roman Catholic Church, which apparently, which seems to be very strongly against homosexuality, the, the priest in this parish welcomed them, gave them this opportunity. And the Cardinal of Chicago, as far as I know, never condemned this. So it seems like there can be top-down heavy authority. But what happened in Chicago? How do you explain that? And uh, so there's there's this veneer of structure and authority and unity and all like that. But here's promoting homosexual homosexuality during a mass in a parish in Chicago, which it shouldn't be. So, so where is that authority uh, actually? Not to mention, I mean, the two biggest splits in church history came with with a pope and a magisterium, you know, with Eastern Orthodox and Protestants. That's right. I mean, <laughs> throwing excommunication and and uh, yeah. threatening murder and things like that. So it's it's not been a great history. I, I've always been curious, too, because so so whenever I hear sort of uh, street level like Catholic apologetics or, or Catholic arguments, it usually comes down to two kind of tropes. One is this is kind of well, actually three, the denominational the plethora of denominations that Protestants have that you were speaking of, whereas Catholics provide unity from their pers pers perspective. The second one is the, the the famous, you know, you Protestants, you guys have a pope. It's every person with a Bible becomes their own pope. And then there's then there's also the one where it's like, well, who inspired the table of contents, the the canon? You and you touched on it a little bit, but I'm I'm curious about your thoughts on that that everybody. Protestantism makes everybody a pope, everybody their own authority. It's not whether you have a pope, it's which pope are you going to trust. Um, what are your thoughts on, on that, that objection? So speaking from a Baptist perspective, uh, we do not have a pope, but we have in each of our local autonomous churches a plurality of elders or pastors who have the responsibility to proclaim the good news, teach the whole counsel of God, lead the church, pray, shepherd according to the word. So we do have a structure in our local church for the proper instruction and exhortation and correction according to the word of God. So yes, I do bear responsibility as an individual member of my church to read and study the Bible and interpret it, Right. But my pastors have a responsibility to make sure that I'm doing that correctly and applying it correctly and living it out. So I object to the notion that each one of us is a pope. We actually have a structure in our individual churches for um, the authority of the word of being taught and uh, being instructed in that. And again, the pope is not the answer. 
uh, that it that it would seem to be, because again, there is a vast number, as a big spectrum of interpretive differences, which manifest themselves in different quote unquote denominations or orders in the Catholic Church. You've got the Augustinians, you've got the Dominicans, you've got the, the uh, Opus Dei, you've got the very progressives, right? So all of these groups, orders, kind of denominations within the Catholic Church also have a lot of different interpretations of the Bible. Where's the Pope in this? The Roman Catholic Church is very, very broad, and it accept, I think it even enjoys this uh, th this ecumenism within its own ranks and this very broad tent approach, but it's not a whole lot different from what we find out in our Protestant churches, I think. What about the uh, the table of contents issue? You know, I think you yep. mentioned earlier that the Catholics have uh, more books in their Old Testament canon, and it's really a question of how the canon came to be and how they understand that. Because I, I assume the Catholic response would be, how do you know that you have the Bible? There has to be some body that God has given to us that can make that determination. Um, otherwise, you're just going to have different canons and different sects. So that's oftentimes I'm, I've heard an argument for at least the elevated view of tradition and, and certainly the magisterium, the papacy, that type of thing. Yeah. Um, let's think first about the Old Testament. Uh, the question we should pose is, what was the Bible of Jesus and his apostles? Uh, they are uh, Palestinian. So their Bible is the Hebrew Bible, which does not have and never has had these additional apocryphal writings in it. So when Jesus, according to Luke 4, goes in, in the synagogue and he's handed the scroll of Isaiah, the prophet from which he reads and preaches, that underscores the fact that uh, that his Bible was the Hebrew Bible, 22 or 27 books, according to different orderings, that correspond exactly to our Old Testament today. And these apocryphal writings were not accepted in the early church. We can read different authors, different leaders in the church uh, who gave us lists of Old Testament canon, someone like a Jerome, for example. And, and Jerome clearly distinguished between inspired, authoritative, canonical Old Testament writings and non-canonical, non-inspired Old Testament writings like Judith and Tobit and First and Second Maccabees. It's not until we come to Augustine, end of the fourth century, beginning of the fifth century, that he puts pressure on Jerome as Jerome is translating the Bible into Latin. Augustine, who's not good at Hebrew and not very good at Greek, he's reliant on Latin translations. He insists that Jerome include Latin translations of what we call the apocryphal writings, and that's how they entered into the Bible at that time. Uh, but it's interesting, even after uh, this expansion of the Old Testament, with including these apocryphal writings, we still see very important leaders of the Catholic Church uh, saying, no, these books don't belong in the Old Testament. It's not until the Council of Trent, 16th century, that there wow. is an official proclamation by the Roman Catholic Church that the Old Testament consists of the uh, of the traditional books, as well as these seven additional apocryphal writings and the expansion of Daniel and Esther. It's it's so it doesn't it's it, it's a fairly recent phenomenon, five hundred years ago, but was not held widely or ex exclusively, I should say, in the earlier uh, one and a half uh, one and a half um, millennia. So the the table of contents thing, you, you can imagine, there's a group of you know, there's a there's a council and they go, well, these are all the books at one point in time. But you're saying, no, this is actually a very historical development. And the earliest fathers and Jerome, they understand so that these were these were good things, but they weren't. They 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 saw a distinction between them and scripture. And it seems like the Jews didn't recognize these as part of their canon. Is, is that yeah, what the you were, Jews never the Jews never recognize these parts of the canon? The, the, these early books, the, the, these apocryphal books, were associated with what we call the Septuagint. They were added on to the Greek translation of the Old Testament. But the Jews never held those 
as canonical writings, right? And and again, Jesus, a Palestinian, uh, the apostles, their Bible was the Hebrew Bible. And this was the decisive factor for the Protestant reformers who said no to the apocryphal writings, who returned to the sources, that is the Hebrew Bible, what was the canon, and then the writings of the earliest leaders of the of the church who also rejected these uh, non-canonical writings. So you have someone like Jerome saying, yeah, there are canonical books. There are non-canonical books. The non-canonical books, the apocryphal writings, you can read them because they're outstanding examples of faith and wisdom and courage and, and hope and perseverance and persecution. The church can read those for benefit, for edification. But Jerome warns, do not draw your doctrine from these non-canonical apocryphal writings because they're not inspired authoritative from God. Well, going back to the every person a pope sort of idea, um, maybe a more sophisticated Catholic would say, we understand that you Protestants, you have your own traditions and you respect the church fathers. You draw on them for your research. You're well-versed in who these people were. I know Calvin is institutes. He quotes Augustine. He knows the church fathers. That was his heritage. And let's say they grant all that. There still seems to be a way that they could say, but you have all these different traditions. You don't have one tradition. You have all these different traditions. And so it just moves the problem back. Let's say, okay, not everyone's a Pope, but then you've got Reformed tradition. You've got then the Lutheran tradition. You've got Wesleyans. You've got Anabaptists. You've got all these types of traditions. Ultimately, you're going to pick. And so I think it's a question of how do you know even your tradition is interpreting things correctly if you don't have an infallible source of interpretation? That's a great question. And I'm paraphrasing Kevin Van Hooser, but his point is this. The accidental events in European Reformation history, division into Lutheranism, Anglicanism, uh, Reform, Calvinism, things like that. These are accidental events which are not inherent in Protestantism itself. We decry, we bemoan the fact that there are these divisions, but there's nothing inherent in the Protestant system itself that insists that the result of Protestantism necessarily will be what we've seen uh, in, in history. And uh, that would be my response to that kind of line of questioning from Roman Catholics. We bemoan the fact, but this isn't a systemic problem necessarily. And again, to be fair, let's talk about the divisions within the monolithic, quote unquote, Catholic Church. There's a spectrum within Roman Catholicism as broad as the spectrum within Protestantism, Lutheranism, Anglicanism, uh, Calvinism, Pentecostalism, Evangelicalism. The spectrum in both is very, very broad. So it's, it's a problem, I think, that saddles us both, that constrains us to be the best interpreters of scripture possible, the best theologians considering all the relevant aspects, passages of scripture as we develop our doctrine, to work together to try and resolve those difficulties and also proclaim Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come again when we will see face to face and we will finally understand uh, the truth of God and his ways according to scripture as we should have all along. That's a good point. It might just be, it's not, it's not intrinsic to Protestantism. It might just be intrinsic to sinners that this happens. Yes. Because yep. it's happening in the Catholic Church. And I, I can imagine that they would probably say the magisterium, they debate things, they they research things, they probably disagree among themselves. And I think maybe in the Protestant tradition, we're just doing the same thing on a broader scale and we're not being as maybe dogmatic of, about certain pronouncements. But I and yeah, we ahead. have a we have a window into this. A couple of years ago, Francis uh, came out with a number of statements, uh, actually an encyclical, to which four cardinals responded, asking him to clarify what seemed to them to be wrong doctrine. I don't know if they use false doctrine, false teaching, heresy, or something like that, but they were deeply concerned that the Pope had erred. They asked him. Mm. Uh, four specific questions to see if he would clarify them. He's not responded to them. So, so here's an example of the Pope proclaiming something 
and leading cardinals saying, we don't think so. So how different is that from Protestantism? I'm not sure, but it certainly belies the notion that there's a monolithic uh, structure in the Catholic Church, one interpretation only, one doctrinal framework only. It's just not the case. I think it is a problem. We're all fallen. Yeah. And God has not willed to give us 100 percent accuracy of interpretation of scripture, formulation of theology. It forces us to get together and try and work out these differences, try to understand as best as we can. And it nourishes our hope in the return of Jesus when we will see face to face and we will understand fully God and his ways. So, and I I know that Catholics don't think that everything Francis says, Pope Francis says is infallible. And I I think there's certain times when he can rule infallibly, but that's very rare. I mean, I don't think it's really happened. Um, But, but your, but to your point, even there, it's, it's not, uh, it's a bit romanticized that uh, these divisions are part of how the church clarifies its doctrine and works through these types of things. You mentioned liberal Catholics. And obviously the the example of the gay couple at mass. And that's fascinating to me that there, I I suppose that there are parishes or there are, I don't know, bishops who just think it's okay to go against Catholic teaching, especially on things like divorce or, you know, uh, even abortion. I mean, I, 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 how how do they how do they work that out? Like when you talk to a Catholic, you're like, "What are these rogue bishops doing? Why haven't you disciplined them? Why haven't you done anything? Is it just a, a negligence? Is it just it's too big for for the Pope to weigh in on all these types of things?" Um, it it's seems a like huge a question, and, and you've hit a number of areas. Excommunication in the Roman Catholic Church is extremely rare, hmm. and so you have what you've called rogue bishops, and there's a whole process that needs to go through, uh, but rarely is that process even begun. Because, again, the Roman Catholic Church is such a big tent approach. So it it, it tolerates what appears to us Protestants to be mutually exclusive points of view. The the latest approach now with Francis, this has been going on for a couple of years, it's called the synodal approach, S-Y-N-O-D-A-L, synodal approach. It's the Roman Catholic Church now setting up listening centers uh, on local levels, uh, citywide, state level, regional levels, uh, asking the bishops to convene meetings with lay people and listen to their concerns because the church wants to open itself up to greater lay involvement. And uh, so they're trying to listen to Roman Catholic lay people's concerns. But what is also coming forward from this would be just a couple of emphases. One would be uh, women in the uh, becoming priests. And uh, that's going to be very interesting to see. Francis won't even allow discussion about female deacons. So I don't think there's going to be any movement on the female priests, women priests thing. But then also all these moral issues. Um, I think we will see a devolvement in the Roman Catholic moral stance on homosexuality and things like that. I hope not. I hope I'm completely wrong. But an example I I use there in Chicago, right? There's something going on that's that's tolerating uh, homosexuality in a way that I think you go back 50 years ago and it would be unheard of. I mean, there's rumors of, right, the the, the gay mafia in the Vatican and... um, Estimates of how many gay priests there are, 10%, 30%, no no one knows for sure. But there, there seems to be something going on at the center of the church that's tolerating greater uh, diversity on what used to be very clear-cut moral stances. And that's disturbing to everybody, I think. And that's very confusing to conservative Catholics. But it's I think, uh, becoming the hallmark of progressive or liberal Catholics. I suppose if you were a conservative Catholic, though, you could say, well, Francis could be really wrong. I mean, even if Francis flips yes. on something like homosexuality, you could say, well, that doesn't mean that the dogma of the church has changed. But but I almost that, that almost sounds kind of desperate. You know, I mean, if if the vicar uh, a, 
of Christ a is, friend of is mine, his a, mind. Yeah. A friend of mine, Eduardo Echevidia, he's a Roman Catholic systematic theo- theologian, very, very good. Yeah. Uh, he's openly critical of Pope of uh, Pope Francis uh, and has actually written at least one book, uh, highly critical, showing where Francis is wrong. Um, you know, so conservative Catholics are very, very concerned. And, and I, as a conservative Protestant, as an evangelical, I'm concerned with them about uh, Francis and the direction he's taking the Catholic Church. On. But you mentioned a, a couple of minutes ago the yeah. whole idea of infallibility. When yeah. the Pope is doing a newspaper interview and he says something about an atheist, he could be going to heaven. Who knows? Because of his yeah. good works. That's not an infallible statement. Right. But it shocks, rightly so, uh, conservative Roman Catholics and evangelicals. Right. It shocks us. It's not an infallible statement. So we have to be careful as Protestants don't pin statements like this and say, oh, well, this is the official position of the Catholic Church. It's not. But when Pope Francis writes encyclicals, these are official statements. Again, they're not they're not infallible, but they're very, very important and authoritative to a very high degree. But it's different from when the Pope proclaims ex cathedra from the seat of Peter official tradition like the bodily assumption of Mary Mm -hmm. or her immaculate conception. That's important, too, because. You can see the upside of, okay, if you have a strong hierarchical authority, conceptually, at least, you can you can really inform the borders of, of doctrine and, 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 and bring clarity to issues and have a, have a ruling. And I think that's why they have to have this infallible doctrine or, and this strong view of the tradition, because if they're wrong, they can't really reform it. I mean, they can't really right. change it because it's set in stone because of their system. So they've got to always be right. And that's the terrifying thing where it's like you can't you can't go back on, you know, the assumption of Mary or you can't go back on all these papal doctrines because of the actual system. These are these are set in stone. Um, and and so I, I guess that that's one of the maybe that's why the Reformation couldn't reform the Catholic Church. I don't know. It's is, is it irreformable? Um, in certain aspects, yes, it is. Hmm. Um, that doesn't mean that an individual priest in an individual parish can't, uh, be very biblical, theologically sound, evangelical in his, uh, theology and practice. I, I, I befriended priests who are clearly evangelicals and they they find themselves in a particularly difficult situation in the roman catholic church because it as a system is not going to be reformed it it won't be able to be reformed but they themselves on a local level um can be very very clear in preaching the gospel and discipleship and things like that so i guess that would be my answer it it is fast i think maybe carl truman said something like this where i was someone made the striking statement that the papacy is the most divisive doctrine in all of the Christian tradition. It's not, it's not justification by faith. It's not even the approach to scripture necessarily, or a view of the Eucharist. It's that's the one thing where if you lose the papacy, you no longer have Roman Catholicism. I mean, it seems to be the pinnacle. That is, that is the distinctive factor that if that were removed, there could be maybe some more ecumenical dialogue, but even just thinking about how they won't give communion to Protestants is, is quite a statement. That is a statement of disfellowship. Even if you can say separated brethren or any of these types of things, that is not. And I think about that with uh, people considering going over to Rome. I'm like, that's a statement, not just for yourself. It's a statement to me, it's a statement yes. to the church you're leaving. It's a statement to everybody because communion is a big deal. And that's, that's, you're saying something by that, by closing the table like that. Absolutely. Going back to Carl Truman, uh, I love his writings. He's fantastic. I, I'd have to think more about, do we want to boil down the key difference just to one element? I take a more systemic approach. Sure. I see the papacy, transubstantiation, justification, Mary, uh, all I, I see it as um, 
is all rolled together. It's They're all system. interrelated. Yeah. All yeah. interrelated. Right. So you right. can't just take out one brick and have sure. the wall come tumbling down. But I think he he's very uh, correct. That is a major, major, major plank uh, that uh, holds the whole system. Uh, in terms of communion, I think you put your your uh, finger on a very important issue. So the Roman Catholic Church is engaged in ecumenical dialogue, wants unity, calls us now separated brothers or or even more. We're saved, just not fully saved, right? Like Roman Catholics are. Mm-hmm. But there is a there is the Eucharist, the sacrament of the Eucharist that continues to scream every time the Eucharist is celebrated. Protestants are not us, are not part of us. We cannot have communion, literally. We cannot have unity with Protestants because our view of the Eucharist is transubstantiation. And though there may be different Protestant views, no Protestant holds to transubstantiation. This screams there is a division that I don't think will ever be uh, healed. In your time studying Roman Catholicism, was there ever one particular argument for it that you were like, that's a good one? Like you kind of felt the little itch. You're like, this might be it. Was there anything that was particularly close to convincing you of of the validity of the system? I can't say that there ever was. (laughs) Um, What's um, what uh, raises a question in my mind? is the reality of evangelical Roman Catholics, evangelical priests in particular, who could explain the gospel like you would explain, like I would explain, who, and quoting one of my friends who would say before celebrating the the Eucharist, he would say, if you are celebrating uh, the Eucharist without faith in Jesus Christ, you may as well be eating a banana. Really? Yeah. Now that's <laughs> that's a very strong, even non-Catholic, anti-Catholic view. But that to me is always perplexing because I I be deeply befriended a number of these these guys, and uh, I understand their heart. They, they they hold to justification like you and I do, uh, yet they remain in the system for missional purposes. Hmm. Uh, that to me has always been somewhat perplexing. Because here they are part of a system, and yet within the system, they're trying to reform it in a very evangelical way. Sounds like some people we knew in the past. (laughs) Like, yeah, 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 yeah. So, so it's um, that that doesn't draw me to Roman Catholicism, but it is certainly uh, an interesting reality within the Catholic Church. Yeah. Well, Luther started as a monk. Oh, and, you're talking yeah. about Luther. Oh, yeah, 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 right. yeah, yeah. Way back yep. in the past. That's how ha- it's, it's happened yeah, before, way back in the you know? past. Okay, yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, this is a, this is related, and I've always wondered this. Do Catholics would they affirm things like maybe they wouldn't use the terminology, but would they affirm things like the inerrancy of scripture? Like, do they have do they accept sort of the liberal historical critical kind of thing that's uh, that's all over liberal Protestantism? Um, do do they would they agree with you know, the Chicago statement on inerrancy or something like that, that do they have that kind of sense of the historicity of scripture and the inerrancy of scripture? The Roman Catholic Church uh, has always been a staunch defender of the inerrancy of scripture until Vatican II, 1962 to 1965. The Catholic Church always affirmed the full inspiration of Scripture, the inerrancy of Scripture, the authority of Scripture, obviously joined to tradition uh, and matters like this. What happened in Vatican II was uh, there. there's an important uh, element of one of the documents in the of Vatican II on the doctrine of Scripture called De Verbum, the, on the Word of God. Um and the uh, and Vatican Council II was going to make a very strong statement affirming the inerrancy of Scripture. But there was work on this document in committees. And at a certain point in the committee, um, Cardinal Koenig from Vienna, Austria, stood up and said, we cannot affirm the inerrancy of Scripture because in Matthew 27, Matthew attributes uh, what happened to Judas to Jeremiah, 
but uh, we can't find anything in Jeremiah that actually has anything like what happened to Judas. So Cardinal Koenig uh, basically derailed this committee's work in affirming the inerrancy of Scripture, saying we cannot affirm it. At that point, then, there was a rewriting of the of this draft of the document, which affirmed the inerrancy of Scripture, the truthfulness of Scripture, in matters of faith and practice, when matters of salvation. And that was a categorically extremely different move that had ever taken place in the Roman Catholic Church. And as I read the the, the transcripts of the of the discussion of that um, committee, it, it deeply saddens me because we need Roman Catholics, we need all Protestants to affirm the inerrancy of Scripture. But there was a movement away from it. And, and liberal Catholics, progressive Catholics, repeat that over and over again. No, it's truthful, authoritative in matters of faith and practice, but not when it comes to, example, the creation of the universe and, and other historical and scientific matters. Conservative Catholics may come along and still affirm the inerrancy of Scripture, but I think it's a minority position today. So basically, it opened up sort of a a, a pathway for more liberal visions of Scripture to enter in, while still under the the kind of the umbrella of authority and types of things. That's I did not know that. That is very interesting. Yeah, um, it uh, it it represents though what's what's been going on in the Catholic Church for the yeah. last fifty to sixty years. It's a broadening of the tent. It's an openness to take in. Um, some non-traditional positions like not clearly affirming the inerrancy of Scripture in all matters, limiting it to matters of faith and practice. So just as there are people who would hold to a very liberal vision of the inerrancy of Scripture and all these types of things in Protestantism, there is that in Catholicism as well. It's it's as broad a spectrum in Roman Catholicism as it is in Protestantism. <laughs> That's yes, fascinating. It, yeah. Well, uh, this has been a great discussion. I, just to get it on a practical level, you know, we're we considering the Catholic critiques of Protestants with regard to sola scriptura and all these types of things. Even if it's a straw man, what are some ways that Protestants can guard against the legitimate concerns that Catholics could have? Everyone being their own pope, uh, not having appreciation for tradition, that that kind of thing? How can Protestants maybe even, I don't know if you would want to even say like appreciate about the Catholic vision or or take for themselves. Do you have any thoughts upon that with their the approach to scripture? I think we as evangelicals um, have that great uh, emphasis on personal reading of scripture study of scripture, memorization, application of scripture, and we don't want to lose that. At the same time, uh, reading and understanding scripture is not a matter of me and my Bible holed up in a corner of my office, interpreting it, trying to understand it without any help, without any framework, just the way that it appears to me. Whenever that's taken place within Protestantism, the result has never been good. And so we um, illumined by the Holy Spirit and following uh, good biblical interpretive principles, reading a passage in its context, looking for uh, understanding the words and the sentences and the argument and the poetry and the narrative, following some basic hermeneutical principles, interpretive principles taught to us in our churches, by our pastors, illumined by the Spirit, and listening to input from others, not excluding ourselves from what our pastors, what our elders will help us to understand. I think we should continue that tradition, uh, that, that great emphasis of always reading and studying and elevating Scripture in our life and in our churches. Woe to us if we move away from that. I would say that's one thing. And then secondly, um, if you feel a tendency towards a progressive evangelicalism, I'm going to ask, I'm going to urge you to turn around uh, and go the other way. Uh, there's a great movement towards uh, away from what we might call conservative evangelicalism towards much more progressive uh, evangelicalism. This is going to be seen in uh, moral stances, accepting what uh, the church 
in general has never accepted and evangelicals have never accepted. And I, I, I fear for our evangelical world that at least in the West, we're, we're going to compromise on these very important moral, ethical matters. And when we do that, uh, we, we're, we're going to foster a culture of death rather than a culture of life. And woe to us if we do that. You have any uh, thing you would say to somebody, a Protestant who is considering going to Catholicism? If you just had a, if you sat down with coffee, what are some things that you might, how would you approach that conversation or things that you might say? I would first ask, what's the attraction? Um, for example, they're, they may be attracted to the mass, mm -hmm. um, the liturgy of the word, the liturgy of the Eucharist, the repetition of the creed, the songs, the prayers. Um, I, I would I would say, okay, let's go to a Roman Catholic mass together. And what I would do then is when it comes time for the sacrament of the Eucharist, I, I, I would take my friend, I'd walk up to the front and I would say, now watch what's going on. And the, all these Roman Catholics are taking, they're, they're taking the bread in their hand and then eating it and then taking some of the, of the wine in the cup. This is the body and blood of Christ. And then we would go up there and we would not be able to do that. We would go, we would fold our hands over our chests, which would signal to the priest, we're non-Catholics. We can't participate. We want a blessing. And he would pray, give us a blessing and all like that. And we'd go back to our seat. And afterwards I debrief and I would say, so what did you notice? Well, I, I couldn't participate in the sacrament of the Eucharist, which is the summit of the Catholic church. It is the sacrament of sacraments. It's that which makes the church. And yet you as a Protestant, you're excluded from it, right? So what is this? You, you love the mass and you like the unity that it represents, but it's a, it's a, if not the major dividing factor between us. So again, don't romanticize it. Or I would talk, and let's say they, in listening, they would say, what really draws me uh, to um, Roman Catholicism is its long history. Um, and I would go, you know, um, I would give him a copy or her a copy of my um, historical theology book, which I wrote uh, 20, uh, 12 years ago, and, and say, I, as an evangelical, uh, deeply appreciate the writings, the small t tradition of the church, to the point that I wrote an 800-page book encouraging evangelicals to latch onto history, to uh, cull that wisdom from the past and use it to help form doctrine today and say, you don't have to be a Roman Catholic to be steeped in history to rely on wisdom from the past, small t tradition. We evangelicals, that's our wisdom as well. That's our legacy and heritage as well. You don't have to go to Roman Catholicism to gain this. Just become a historically oriented, tradition appreciating evangelical. You don't have to leave us. Those would be a couple things I would do. That sounds like a great start. Dr. Allison, thank you so much for joining us. This is really insightful. I think it's going to be helpful for a lot of people. And I appreciate the work that you're doing and coming on with us. And I hope to have you on uh, some other time. If you guys are interested in reading more about this, again, pick up Dr. Allison's book, 40 Questions About Roman Catholicism. It's a good primer. It's an accessible way for just any ordinary layperson, maybe someone you know, someone who's thinking about Roman Catholicism, maybe you yourself have questions, pick up that book. And you can find, I'm sure, many other resources uh, that Dr. Allison has written about that as well. He's written beyond just Roman Catholicism. Uh, you can check out those works uh, in addition to his works on uh, Catholics. But again, thank you, Dr. Allison. Thanks so much, Brian. Really enjoyed a great conversation. Thank you so much.